Welcome to the Web 2.0 Show with your hosts, Josh Owens and Chris Saylor. We're a show about the new web, the latest thoughts and technology behind internet development and content delivery. Welcome to episode 19. We have David Heinemeyer Hansen with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, some of the stuff you've done in the past, uh, who you work for. Um, so I work for and with and I'm actually now a partner of 37 Signals, um, small firm based primarily in um, Chicago. And I'm in Chicago now too myself, but I just moved here in uh, November from uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, I've been living all my life in Denmark and I started working with 37 Signals out of, uh, of Denmark. Um, I've been working with... 37 signals for quite some time. I think I started working with um, Jason and the rest of the gang in 2001. Um, at that time, just doing various consultancy gigs. Actually, 37 signals was the first paid programming job I ever had. And then worked over the years while attending school and doing other things. That just escalated to, to the point of where I became a partner in the beginning of last year and, and now moved here in November of last year. Um, but programming was never really my intention uh, of what I wanted to do. I used to do a lot of writing, um, gaming journalism in particular, and I thought that that was more of what I wanted to do. But along the way came this funny thing called the Internet. I thought that was the perfect channel for gaming journalism I wanted to write and do, so started making various gaming websites, and since I didn't have any programming skills back then, I kind of acquired them for the task at hand, which was usually to build these various websites with help from friends I had, but I basically needed to learn these HTML and CSS and so on and so forth to do these things, and I picked up PHP and some ASP along the way too, and then it basically just came to the point where I stopped being all that interested in doing gaming journalism for the rest of my life, but it still hung on to this part of making websites and making uh, content management systems and you were web applications in general. What? I said you were hooked at that point? Yeah, I, 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 was, I was getting hooked. I was, it was more probably unconsciously hooked than consciously because I still did not think of myself as a programmer even though I was doing various programming tasks. It wasn't really until probably I got my first paycheck from Third Sin Signals that I thought, hey, maybe this stuff I'm doing is actually programming. How did you get involved with, uh, with, using, with using Ruby? Um, so I started using PHP as my first programming language for the web. I've been doing various basic and other experiments into programming, but nothing that really sticked around in my brain for very long. So I started doing PHP uh, for all these gaming websites. Then I had a job at a really enterprise Java shop for, I think, about nine months or so, where I got a really compressed exposure to J2E and Java in general, JSP and all that stuff. And I've been dabbling in, in that um, sometime after that, but 
most of the stuff I was doing was in, in PHP. And then I realized when I'd been working with third time sequels for about, I think, three or four years, and we came up with the idea of doing Basecamp, um, that I wanted to try something different. Because one of the reasons I didn't really think of myself as a programmer was that I didn't enjoy the act of programming that much, simply because I was not happy working in the languages and the platforms I was working with, um, PHP and Java. Um, I love PHP just for the fact of getting something done extremely quickly. You can get something dynamic uh, up on the web page from a database in very, very little effort. Um, and as somebody who didn't consider themselves a programmer, that was extremely attractive to me. But at the same time, as time uh, went by, I, I definitely ran into the limitations of, of PHP as soon as you wanted to do um, abstraction and as soon as you started realizing what is clean code, what is reuse, what is all these things that good software developers are supposed to care about. And my exposure to Java definitely gave me a different perspective on that. I saw a lot of interesting patterns and concepts and um, usages that were quite different from the PHP world, but definitely not flawless. They, the Java world, in my perspective, has its, its own set of, um, of problems to deal with. So I was really never happy with neither Java or PHP. So we were going to do this new thing, this Basecamp product, for ourselves not some consultancy gig where we were under the obligations of you have to do this in PHP or, or some other platform because the client dictates it. Um, I was thinking now is the greatest time as ever to try something new. And I've been reading about uh, Ruby for some time in advance. Martin Fowler and the Pragmatic Programmers um, used to have these articles I would read where they would say, um, the Ruby is this wonderful programming language. Um, we're not really allowed to use it much for work stuff, but here's the pseudocode to explain this concept I'm writing about in Ruby. So I thought if all of these clever people um, would really, really like to use Ruby if they could, why don't give it? Why don't I give it a try now that I don't have the constraints that they were having at the time of client saying have to do this in Java. Or, C-sharp or whatever was uh, the dictation from above. So that's what I did, and it took, I think, about a week of various proofs of concept to realize that this was really something very, very different and very, very exciting and something where I could enjoy the act of programming itself um, a lot, actually. So it took about a week to get hooked, and after a month I was completely converted and thinking to myself, there's no way bloody hell I'm ever going to write a PHP or Java application voluntarily. Um, <laughs> so nice. Yeah, that's pretty much how it got started. So you're a pretty smart guy. I mean, you've, uh, you were named the uh, sexiest geek alive, I, I do believe, by Business Week. Right, but who's counting? <laughs> do you... Uh, do you feel the direction of Rails has been so successful because of your core ideas, like don't repeat yourself, the MVC, or because you you just had an amazing ability to execute uh, creating it all? Well, 
first is to be said that none of those ideas are mine. Uh, I think Don't Repeat Myself is Dave Thomas and Andy Hunt, um, a phrase they coined for the pragmatic programmer. And MVC, the model view control pattern, is, I think, from... 74 or something like that. Um, and that really goes for the majority of the good ideas in Rails. They're neither new nor mine. Um, so I think that what I brought to the table was just um, in parts execution and in parts impatience um, that I wanted to use all of these good ideas, but I did not want to suffer under the environments that they were often um, conceived in or primarily used in. So Java, for example, I've probably had um, a, a monopoly on um, a thinking power around uh, web applications and patents and so on and so forth for almost a decade where a ton of smart people would um, do all their clever thinking with Java implementations. And most of these clever thoughts and clever patterns and ideas could be even better realized if you didn't have uh, the ball and chain around your feet. Um, and I think that's what Rails is a lot about. It's a lot about taking existing like, good ideas and putting them into a language that doesn't suck. And then caring about the framework is a complete software package, approaching it in large aspects just as you would consumer software, where you care about the programmer and the programmer's happiness and not just about performance or scalability or any of these other abilities that people usually count when they uh, talk about frameworks and languages and platforms. So, yeah, to answer your question, I think uh, I brought mainly execution to, to the pond and then just a collection of good ideas from all over the place. Okay. Another question I had was, with the MVC, uh, I, I know when I find myself coding, I sort of ask myself, should this be in the model, should this be in the controller, should this be in the view? Is there an easy type of question that you can use to kind of categorize where it should go? I, I tend to find myself cramming everything into the controller, and then I'm like, oh, crap, wait, this probably shouldn't be there. Right. I think that the approach I use is um, the model should work and be consistent with itself, even if there was no web application. So... Um, anything that goes to the logic of your application that's not about the mechanics of the web, like forms or um, checkboxes and uh, requests and responses, all of these things, um, they solely belong into the view and into the controller. But everything else, all the logic of how to compute your application should go into the model. So, for example, um, if you're making a online bank, let's say, um, you want to have a transfer method that can take funds from one account to another, that should not be a controller logic. Your controller should not have the logic for how to move funds from one account to another. That solely belongs into your model. And the reason why you want to push all this stuff into your model is, first of all, you can reuse it um, outside of the controller. For example, you can reuse it in, in nightly scripts, we have a lot of um, various maintenance scripts and billing scripts and uh, statistical scripts running 
on Basecamp and all the other apps we have that use the model directly. Doesn't talk to the controller, doesn't care about the views, just want to talk to the core so-called business logic of the application. Um, second part of is that all that logic, you want to have it in a place that's really easy to test and to test um, in tiny units at a time. So, for example, this transfer method that can transfer funds from one account to another, you want to make pretty sure that that works. And the only consistent way i found to make sure or be fairly confident something works is by unit testing. And if you have all the logic in the models, it's way easier to unit test something because you're basically just unit testing a single method. You're setting up your fixtures saying, like, I have fund or account A and I have account B. Let's try to transfer $100 from one to another and see if it actually worked. That can very easily be summed up to in a, in a unit test when you have this model split. It's pretty hard to automate that stuff if all you can do is like repeat clicks in a browser. Like, it's a very inconvenient way of testing it. And, of course, this three-way split is also just a great way of reducing the complexity of your application, giving yourself concepts that you can wrap your head around, that you can have this one account model, you can look at that, you can understand it without having to understand all the mechanics that goes into making the rest of the web application work, which is, of course, something if you just code something in a huge chunk, like if you have all the logic in your controller, it gets harder and harder to separate. What's, what's the core uh, mechanics of moving funds from one account to another, and what's the core uh, mechanics of introspecting the forms and valid or looking at the values and making them convert them into arrays, so whatever you want to do that's about converting the input from the browser into something that's usable for your model. You don't want to intertangle those things too much. So one rule of thumb that I usually have is, it's a big warning sign if you're Act or actions, the methods of your controllers in Rails is more than five lines of code. If they're more than five lines of code, you probably have too much logic in them, and you should try to see if there's a way to put that logic into the model instead. Hmm. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Time to refactor. <laughs> now, active record is some uh, dark voodoo magic. Uh, what did you base that off of? Um, actually, it's all in the name. There's a Patent as coined by um, Morton Fowler um, called Active Record. He wrote a book called Patents of Enterprise Application Architecture. And even though it has the word enterprise in it, it's actually a really, really good book. Um, and it describes a ton of uh, common patents around um, all of this stuff that we usually do in web applications. And the great thing about the Active Record patent is that it's really simple. It's basically saying that you have one class that corresponds to one table. And that's a very pragmatic compromise over various other approaches to mapping objects and, and databases together. Um, in the Java world, a lot of the ways of doing that uses another pattern, something called data mapper, where you're basically saying objects are totally separate from database implementations, and I will make no assumptions about how the two operate together. So whenever you have to do anything, you have to make a ton of configuration to map these things up, because you can't rely on um, core notions of something like a class corresponds to a table. And that's incredibly flexible. Flexibility is not free. 
flexibility comes with a very high cost of configuration, of maintenance, of usually not being very dry, where you have to repeat yourself over and over again. By making this compromise thing, okay, we're simply just going to say that each um, class belongs to a single table. We get to have a ton of things for free. We get to uh, not do a bunch of um, configuration work because we can base um, a lot of assumptions off that notion. Um, and that really helps cutting down the complexity while still allowing people to do a reasonable amount of um, uh, complex mapping between the database and, uh, and the objects. Not infinite complexity can be mapped, but that's okay. If you're running into the limits of active record, your model is probably too complex anyway, and you should think about a way to reduce complexity uh, in the in the business thinking of your application before you try to describe it in software. With Rails, I know you guys just released uh, 1.1. How do you, I guess, make the decisions to, I guess, choose the various directions that Rails should move in for future releases? Basically, by not making any conscious choices like that. Hmm. Pretty much all the new features in Rails 1.1 are extractions, which means that we needed that feature for some application that any of the people either contributing or in the core or in third semi signals needed for their application. So if you take something, the big main feature in, in one one is RJS, Ruby-based JavaScript. As at third semi signals we were we've been doing a, a bunch of Ajax for quite a while now. And one of the first major Ajax applications we did was something called uh, Backpack. Backpack had a lot of um, Ajax magic all over the place, and what we realized was that describing all of this logic in JavaScript itself, in big JavaScript libraries and sprinkled all over the place, was not a very maintainable solution. So Backpack currently suffers at least a, a tad from um, just this early exploration of how we should do Ajax and Rails. So when we started doing the following applications at third semi sequels like Campfire or Sunrise, we were pretty intent of not making the same mistakes with Ajax as we had done with Backpack. And Sam Stevenson, uh, the creator of the prototype JavaScript library, um, came up with this great notion of RJS. Basically, creating the JavaScript you need to do a single update on the server side and then the, just shipping it over to the client as text and then have the browser eval that text. So we're basically just writing JavaScript on the server side in Ruby, and then it's being compiled into JavaScript that's just text shipped across to the browser, and the browser evaluates it and gets it in there. We could not have come up with that feature by sitting down and simply thinking about it. Hmm, what would be nice to have in the next version of Rails? Innovation just doesn't work like that. You can't predict um, cool ideas like that just by sitting on um, in a stool and thinking, let me do something great for the world of web application development. Um, and the same goes for pretty much all the other elements, major um, elements of the Rails 1.1 release. They're all extracted from real problems that we found solutions to. We don't try to come up with the solutions first and then try hunting for problems that match. Another example of that is the um, uh, 
polymorphic associations and join models. Um, realizing that hasn't belongs to many is too uh, poor a way of expressing complex relationships between um, objects where the relationship itself has attributes. So, for example, when you're describing the relationship between books and authors, in prior version of, pr versions of Rails, you would usually just make a has and belongs to many relationships. So, author has and belongs to many books. But what if you wanted to decorate that um, relationship with a uh, additional uh, attributes? If you wanted something about um, when does author start to be involved with the book. It's not something that should sit on neither the book itself or on the author um, object. It should be something that sits just in the relationship. And that's where we came up with the notion of join models. So you can expose that that relationship is actually a model. That model could be called something like authorship. And now you have a very natural place to describe all of the additional attributes and describe all of the additional logic that pertains just to the relationship. Um, and we did the same thing with the polymorphic associations where you can have something like a tag, can tag multiple classes, so it doesn't necessarily um, relate to a single class, like uh, has many or belongs to post. It belongs to the notion of something being taggable. And the tackable item could either be a post or a comment or a milestone of any of these other things. And that was born out of um, Sunrise, where we needed to tag a very a variety of different um, classes with the same tags. So when we were holding the tag, let's say um, business, we would be able to get back both people and companies and posts and so on and so forth. Um, I think that's the way we intend to continue to drive the Rails development simply by looking at what do we need in the next applications we have. Is there anything in there we could extract and make generic enough um, so that it could serve to please most of the people most of the time? That's basically the, um, the cut line we have for whether something makes it into Rails or not. Um, and we try not to be too clever in advance. Not tr try not to simply sit down and think, wouldn't it be cool if? Um, because usually when we do that, we come up with features we later re regret, and we have a number of examples of that in Rails, um, where it's basically whenever we don't do extractions, it turns out that um, we don't know exactly what we want, and that's not a great way of developing a framework. A framework should be an extraction. It should be a collection of proven solutions to problems that was solved by the contributors. Cool. We're going to go ahead and switch tracks a little bit. Uh, let's see. No pun intended, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've done some work with ebooks um, in, in, in recent history, um, the Getting Real book and also Agile Web Development with Rails. Um, you also mentioned it on, on your blog. Um, tell us about, uh, I guess, the, the coming shift that's, that, that's probably going to happen in the, in the publishing industry. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, so I realized um, a couple of years ago that I really liked books, but I wasn't too fond of paper, especially not for technical books, and especially not for technical books that I needed to look up or look into while I was doing my work. 
Um, so that's how I came interested in, in PDF books, because PDF just seemed like um, such a perfect format for technical books that you needed to reference all the time. I hated looking up um, stuff in the back of the book to look through an index and see if I could match a keyword to find something. Um, I have a fair number of paper technical books, and a lot of them are really great. Like, O'Reilly has a wonderful book on regular expressions, and I really love that book, but oftentimes I will not bother to get the book and go through the pain of looking something up in a paper version of the book. I'll just ask Google for lower quality content, but that's more accessible. So that's how I got interested into the whole um, PDF thing. And as soon as I got interested into that, uh, I started looking around for various publishers that were doing something. And at that time, uh, Manning had been doing um, a couple of PDF books, but they weren't really publishing a lot of um, on Ruby or all of the anything else than Java, really. Um, so the method was interesting, but the content wasn't that appealing to me. So I instead tried to um, get people who were writing something I was interested in to, to use PDFs. Um, and that's how I, I came to talk with uh, Dave Thomas and um, notched him on the way of um, getting the Programming Ruby second edition into PDF. Um, and like, that definitely gave me um, the interest of, of doing more in that area. So um, by the time um, Dave Thomas and I and few other authors were working on agile web development, it was a pretty natural thing that that book was going to come out in as, a, as a PDF book. And the great thing about PDFs is that um, you can sell them um, even before the book is finished, which is something that's really nice for technical books that grow out of date really quickly and where the content is extremely desired. Um, so for the Agile web development book uh, with Rails, the content was pretty desired from the fact that there was no other uh, book out on Rails. There's a lot of tutorials, but no um, long, coherent um, treases of, um, of the subject. So PDFs gave, gave us a way to release um, two-thirds of the book when that was ready and then get a lot of iterations in um, from readers of the PDF, and that could then be fed back into the system before the book was released on paper. And it's been doing pretty well. I think we've been just been sold about around 8,000 copies of the PDF version of Agile Web Development Rails, something like that, which is um, pretty significant. So um, the other part of it was now... I'd only been involved with, with PDF's book as a reader and as uh, a, a co-author writing on something that, where somebody else did all the publishing work, where the Pragmatic Bookshell was doing all the uh, business of talking to um, to bookshops and getting the book on Amazon and getting an ISBN and all of these things. and. When I came into the role of, of being a publisher, along with 37 Signals, when we were going to do the Getting Real book, um, that whole world seemed to not be very Getting Real-ish. Um, it seemed to be extraordinarily hard, laborsome, 
and um, frustrating, basically, to get a paper book out. There's basically a ton of stuff involved in getting a paper book out. And usually all that stuff is outsourced in a way that you sign over your rights to the book to some publisher, and then they give you some um, advance, perhaps it's $10,000, and then you'll usually not see any more of that money because it just there's a ton of work involved in making paper books and distributing them and um, publishers needs to to feed too so it usually ends up that publishing a book for um, a traditional publisher especially a tech book is not something you do for money like you do it for all sorts of other reasons which can be totally legitimate but when we were thinking about doing Getting Real, it was certainly something where we were thinking, if we're going to invest the time in writing this book, it should also be a profitable venture, just like we expect that the applications we do are profitable ventures. We don't do them just for the blue eyes of people. When we're looking at that whole process of, of getting a book out, um, the traditional model did not seem very appealing. And now that we have pushed a book out as, as PDF and sold some I don't even recall the, the latest number, but uh, for more than $100,000 worth of PF books, it's just reaffirmed us in, in the belief that the traditional publishing model is not necessarily right for everybody, and it's certainly not right for somebody who already has a name and who already um, knows how to promote their own wares and who has content that can... Um, easily fit or be desired in, in PDF format. You had a conversation that was kind of going back and forth on your blog with Tim O'Reilly. One of the things he pointed out is that at a traditional publishing firm, you do have access to top-notch editors. Do you think there's maybe room for someone to open up kind of an editing shop that's dedicated to helping the new agile type of book process uh, as far as the editing the content goes? It already exists. Like you can already hire editors and proofreaders and um, other people on consultancy basis. Like you can hire a programmer to just do a single project for you. Yeah, you can already buy these services, and you can buy a designer to do your cover, and you can buy um, somebody to proofread your book. And especially if you're doing PDFs, you can. Um, let your readers or early readers, the ones that are most interested in your content and probably care the least about uh, typing errors, um, help you do this. I think it's just that it's very ingrained, the notion of the traditional publisher. And I think that's probably why people are not realizing that um, you can very well fulfill all the roles that the publisher does for you by yourself. Yes, it requires some work, and yes, it requires more than simply writing a good book. It requires that you're also a tad bit of an entrepreneur and interested in in managing the other parts of the um, book creation. But if you do, we've just been interested in putting out evidence there that if you take this work upon you and if you have um, what it takes to release any book on your own, the rewards are a lot greater. Like on less copies sold, um, we earned more than twelve times what we did with the uh, last book that Thirty Seven Signals published. And for us, um, we're already interested in doing things for ourselves. That was just a, a no-brain 
um, decision that we were not going to be involved with book writing process where we would have to write 12 books to get the same kind of revenue that we were seeing on just one book published by ourselves. That's really cool. You recently had a debate with uh, Katarina Fake about uh, starting a business. Tell us why others you know, should not be discouraged about starting a business right now. So Katarina was basically writing a blog post saying why you shouldn't start a business right now, um, mentioning all kinds of reasons that there's too much going on, nobody will notice you, you'll get drowned out, and by the way, there's too many interesting things to follow otherwise that you won't even have time to make your own application. I thought that was never reflective of how we at least think of the world right now. We don't think that there's ever been a better time to start a business of the type that 37 Signals is as now. Software is free, hardware is incredibly cheap, bandwidth is, is very cheap as well. So basically the only costs you have left are the time of the people involved. And you can get that pretty cheap. You can either save up yourselves and make sure that you have like three available months to, to do something on your own, or you can work nights, or you can do all sorts of other things to create this time out of uh, almost nothing. And what you can do with that time is convert it into valuable services, just like people have been doing for like eternity, uh, creating something of value and then selling it to people who decided that value. And I think it's uh, probably fine to say it's a bad time to start a company if you have no intention, notion of, or idea of how to make any money. But it's a great time to start a business if you actually have a valuable service that people are um, willing to pay for to use. So I think that's probably the distinction. We were talking probably about different things. We were talking at Third Time Sequence about starting businesses that are profitable and have customers with revenues and that sort of boring stuff. And Katarina was perhaps talking more about these um, social experiments that we see all over the web. And maybe it is a bit cluttered for more social experiments like that right now, at least in the form of um, forming a whole company around them. Mm -hmm. 37 Signals has taken a decidedly different approach than I'd say 99% of the other websites who are trying to, to make do on advertising or other forms of monetization. You guys are just straight up charging for your services. Yeah, and I think that that's, I'm amazed that not more people trying to do that. I think it's actually pretty insulting to people um, that you don't think that they're willing to pay for something they value. I think people are always willing to pay for something they found value in. And I hope that we're, um, that is in fact the case, that we've built a quite successful business on simply charging people money for services that they want. It, like, it's not rocket science. Um, and I'm just a little bit uh, disappointed that there's not more action going on in that space because the fact is when you charge people for services they want, you can be a profitable company pretty quickly if you have something that's, that's interesting to people and you don't need VC money, you don't need loans, you don't need to go into debt, and you don't need a ton of people to do it. So from that perspective, there's a lot less risk involved than there used to be. And there's a ton of upside. So uh, I hope definitely that more people go out there and come up with good services and products that people want, <laughs> yeah. want to pay money for. It's yeah, that's what really we're that to, simple. Yeah, that's what we're trying to inspire on our show. Um, we, you know, we cater towards the entrepreneurs and developers who are 
who are, you know, who are building these next-generation services. Excellent. All right. Uh, was there anything you'd like to add? Yeah. Anything you wanted to talk about or discuss? Um, I think we've um, touched a lot of the bases. Um, of course, um, being a partner of the company like 37 Signals, I must, uh, of course, encourage everybody who has uh, uh, interest in doing something for themselves to use our tools to do it. Um, campfire, <laughs> backpack, base camp. But most of your listeners probably already are aware of them. Um, and if not, check them out. Google will find them all. Yeah, yeah actually, we just started uh, using Campfire today. Oh, excellent. Uh, campfire has actually been yeah. a very interesting app for us. Even internally inside the company, we were thinking of chat as being basically just an experiment starting out that we weren't sure would where that was going to go or whether it was even an app we wanted to launch. But now that we've actually completed Campfire, it's by far the more, most useful application in our day-to-day running runnings of uh, Third Sim Signals. It's the application we hang out in all the time and the application we think we've, we would have the hardest time um, doing without at this point. So it's, right, that's pretty much what I wanted to pitch. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so... I guess we've come to that point in the show where we ask everyone, is there any super secret 37 signals information you want to let all the listeners know? I think there's a lot more revealing than than what we already put out there. We're working on something called um, Sunrise, and it's to do with something in the CRM space, but not a CRM app as um, you usually see them implemented, of course. Um, Mm -hmm. We usually don't do something that's already out there in that form. Um, And we're working on um, at least one more idea that's still just on the drawing board, but um, that's going to be pretty exciting, too. We haven't even announced the name of that one yet, Um, and we're going to keep that one quiet for a while, so that's going to be the ultimate tease for that one. (laughs) All right, well, thanks a lot for coming on the show. My pleasure. This has been a Steel Pixel production. For more information about Steel Pixel, you can check out steelpixel.com. Or for more information about the show, feel free to check out web20show.com. That's web20show.com. Anyway, that's my rant on conventions and text fields. <laughs> that's cool. That's funny.